Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our traditional series, Ask the Experts, or Ask the Shrivers, I guess is what we would call it. Um, it's been a while. I think John has been at least two months, maybe yeah, a month and a half. So, yeah. Well, it feels like two months, and you know, John was uh, had a little well-deserved PTO and uh, to good places in the world, and uh, he stayed safe uh, and uh, COVID-free is what I've been told. So, so John, you really practice good infection control policy, so that's very, very good. Today he's going to share with us a, a significant update on COVID-19. It's been a while. I know there are a lot of questions, a lot of questions about the bivalent uh, vaccine that you're all, everyone has, how to prepare for the, for the upcoming uh, fall season, and then move forward. Before I pass it on to John, I just want to thank everyone in the hospital right now here at Connecticut Children's and other hospitals uh, across the state, because it's been really busy. Uh, we have been seeing a surge in uh, uh, RSV, influenza, uh, rhinovirus, severe rhinovirus, enterovirus, and of course the units are full. And uh, for those of you in the emergency department, hopefully some of you are listening, some of you are probably working because we're very busy, at the, you know, the physicians, the, the nurses, our pediatric residents, our fellows, uh, thank you. Thank you for working so hard. I know it's been very, very tough uh, with kids coming in. 1.100 kids in the ED uh, with uh, a border situation with kids, uh, you know, 13. One morning yesterday, last week, was 24 borders trying to get admitted because we didn't have any beds. And also our inpatient units, uh, our nursing teams, our therapists, our residents, our hospital medicine team, and our subspecialists were taking care of these kids. And lastly, uh, last but not least, uh, obviously the critical care units, uh, PICU and NICU, because they're equally busy. So for, for all of you in, in our units, thank you for, for the work you're doing. The outpatient, equally busy. Uh, and, and again, I'm, uh, my sincere thanks, because it's this is hard. I've never seen September like this. I've never saw the summer this way. John may have a comment or two on that as well. Uh, and it's not all COVID. COVID is obviously what probably created this, but it's a different thing. So again, from the bottom of my heart and all of us here and the physician executives, uh, you know, thank you for what you do. Uh, your pediatricians out there in the community, I know you're very busy as well. So John, I'm going to pass it on to you to hear your wisdom and the new things you're going to tell us. Uh, thank you, Juan. It's uh, so nice to be here. Uh, it's been a while. So I very much appreciate everyone coming today. Um, welcome providers and practitioners across Connecticut and New England. Um, believe it or not, there is a lot going on about COVID, but I think, uh, you know, we're in a different place. And I'm going to show you the data. I'm going to talk about uh, the um, booster, and we're going to talk about what, in my opinion, should be the, our public health focus right now for COVID. Uh, and as you know, my opinion doesn't always align with national, you know, CDC and others, but I do think some common sense approaches are probably going to be our next steps. So across the world, um, uh, you know, there's still a lot of COVID uh, around, and the United States is uh, not the worst of it. There's a lot in Europe right now, and actually we don't even know because of the war going on, on in Eastern Europe uh, what's happening with COVID there. Um, I know that there are hot spots in, in Greece and uh, some other countries in the Mediterranean. Uh, we have no idea really what's going on in Africa in terms of numbers. And, um, and so, and the problem is also uh, we, we've moved away from reporting uh, worldwide really the way we used to and so there was a lot of rapid tests circulating around and we really have no idea how many are positive but at the moment we know COVID is circulating around the world and um, it's going to continue I don't think anybody thinks it's going away now in the US it's interesting remember um, these don't include rapid tests so you know it's probably five times this but 
The reality is it's plateaued out. That's your pink graph, and those are the number of new cases that are being reported. Now, a lot of states are no longer really reporting. So we know these data are flawed. We know there's a lot of cases. So really the best thing to look at would actually be deaths and hospitalizations. So forget the pink graph. And in fact, I don't even know why we're reporting it anymore. I would focus on COVID-based hospitalizations. And you can see they're actually pretty static and, uh, and haven't shot up the way they did in some of these other, uh, the Omicron beginning and Delta and others. And so to me, this is a really important measure because what do we really care about? We care about are we going to overwhelm our hospitals and, and are people going to be okay and survive? And if you look at the death rate, it's stabilized out. Now, it looks great, right? It's low. Well, that's 300 to 500 people a day in the United States are dying from COVID. And, and you know, it's a huge number and it's actually morphing in to be the third most common cause of death after cancer and heart disease in the United States. And so it's become a lethal endemic disease in a lot of ways. And we're going to need to understand that and actually intervene. And I'm going to show you some data about where I think the interventions need to occur, because it's not going to be 300 million people anymore. You're going to focus on who is ending up in the hospital and, and who's dying right now at 300 a day. 400, 500 days. So we're going to need, we're going to investigate that just a little bit later on. So we should be following hospitalizations and deaths. We don't really know how many new cases in the United States there are daily. We just don't know anymore. Now, um, it's really important, as I mentioned, where do we intervene? So this is a number of people per 100,000 that are newly admitted to the hospital for COVID. That's what we really should be following, okay? And that's actually stable going down a bit. And you'll see this big curve are people 70 and above. And these other curves, you know, you have some people hospitalized middle age, and then the younger people, it's, it's unusual now to be hospitalized for COVID. And that wasn't true during the initial outbreaks where there was a lot of young people hospitalized, less so now. So, you, you know, it doesn't take um, an infectious disease expert to see, or a neurosurgeon, that we need to focus on people who are older. Those are the people getting admitted to the hospital currently. We have to watch that carefully. Connecticut data doesn't include rapid tests. It's pretty, you know, cooking along. So we really don't know. I mean, in my town, for example, I know like there's 10 people who are COVID positive. It's not showing up in the Massachusetts data. It's just not there because they all did rapid tests and nobody reported it. So, um, you know, this is probably much, much higher. And uh, again, looking at deaths, which I think is a better measure, I don't, I couldn't find real-time Connecticut COVID hospitalizations. It might be there. I couldn't find it. I'll look again, um, but right now I can't find it. But if you look at deaths, they've been very low and very stable in Connecticut. We have a highly immunized population, and everyone who's not immunized has probably had COVID. So there's a lot of um, immunity now, and the death rate's very low because we have effective treatments and, and good, good care. So I think these are, this is a good, a better place than we used to be. Uh, there's still people dying in Connecticut. It looks like almost daily, but it's a very, very small number. And nationally, as I mentioned, about three to 500 are dying daily from COVID. Now, the rate of mortality, deaths per 100 hospitalizations, that's really important. So is this less virulent, you know, or we have better treatments, or is it a combination of both? Probably a combination of both. But if you look at um, the rate of mortality from early Omicron and now, it's dropped a lot. This is, again, great news. To me, it's showing two things. 
we have a lot more immunity, uh, people with immunity, um, because everyone's been immunized or has had COVID, and we have more effective therapies if you do get sick that make it less likely you're going to die from COVID. So, again, good trends, good, good, good place, a better place to be in, in, mo most, in many people's thoughts that's moving to an endemic situation. I know there's some controversy about using that word, but the reality is, again, we're at a, a much less raging pandemic place. Um, we have deaths, but the death rate is much lower per 100 hospitalizations than it was previously. We are doing better if you do get hospitalized. And as I mentioned, the vast majority of deaths, um, these are people who are hospitalized for COVID and died. And the vast majority are in elderly. If you look at the age groups here, this is 65 to 79. And the, the largest numbers of in-hospital deaths are in the older age groups. Now, it's not zero. There are some deaths in 35 age group, you know, younger age groups, very few in children, really, really small numbers. So again, these are the areas to focus on, uh, 65 and above, because that's where the vast majority of the current deaths appear to be occurring. Now, this is a little outdated already, but this is still holding up. Now, the other thing that's really interesting, I'm gonna show you two nuggets of data confirming that it's mostly old people. If you look at people who have insurance who died from COVID, it's mostly Medicare, okay? So again, it's, it's really obvious. And with the other thing that's changed, and this is very important, if you look at Medicaid, um, the death rate among those who are poorer and on Medicaid has dropped. So again, this is becoming a lethal disease of the, of the more elderly. Um, and that's also supported by insurance data. Now, underlying medical conditions um, are very important. And if you look here, if you have two or more underlying medical conditions, your death rate shoots up. So again, this is a disease now, lethal disease, more likely to be lethal in elderly and those with two or more um, underlying medical conditions that are high risk, you know, high blood pressure, kidney disease, that kind of stuff, diabetes. So again, we're, we're getting, to me, we're getting really important public health information as we move to an endemic disease. Where do you intervene? Who are you gonna look after? Who needs to get immunized first? All of these things I think we're, we're now learning as this disease shifts to be a less, less pandemic type illness. What about the booster? Getting a lot of questions and I got boosted um, about seven days after I got back from Greece. I wanted to wait and see if our navigation to the Athens airport resulted in COVID. I will tell you that we're living, our entire family, we're living proof that N95s work because if you can walk through the five hours in the Athens airport and not get COVID, which we didn't, um, and we had N95s on the whole time. So what about the booster though? Because I think um, this has been released early, uh, exactly in time to try to get the winter Omicron wave under control. So Moderna and Pfizer both have a new booster. It includes mRNA that encodes the original Wuhan strain. Okay, the original strain, but also mRNA that encodes the BA45 spike protein. And the BA45 spike protein is, is really the same. So you've got a bivalent mRNA mixture that encodes the Wuhan spike protein and the Omicron 45 spike protein. This was licensed as an addendum on, inc on already existing FDA authorizations, and they're trying to treat it 
the way they treat influenza boosters every year, right? You get a, an influenza comes out slightly varied from the last year, and they don't require a full human trial. They just release it and go on old data that influenza vaccine boosters work fine. So that's where the FDA is trying to move this, okay? They want this to be more of a, a less regulated annual booster model. Now, what are, where are the data about this um, bivalent vaccine? Well, the reality is, unfortunately, there's um, not a lot of data right now. There will be, but right now, these are data just published in the New England Journal of a bivalent Omicron vaccine that has Wuhan, but also mRNA for BA1. Remember the first Omicron variant that went away. So they ran with this, you know, turned out to be the wrong variant, but the vaccine worked really well and there were no safety problems. It had the same sore arm, fever for a day stuff. So um, these are very important data because it showed that Wuhan plus a modified RNA that encoded spike protein for an Omicron worked fine. And the FDA is basing some of their uh, allowance to allow the BA45 bivalent booster based on this BA1 bivalent booster human data. Very important study, it, like I said, came out this week or last week in the New England Journal. It was the Moderna vaccine. And, and here's an example of um, how it did. Here's the Omicron booster, and these are your titers, um, and geometric titers were really good against Omicron. They, they, they really did well, and so it was immunogenic, specifically more better against Omicron than the, uh, than the ancestral vaccines. So bivalent work better, and again, the FDA used these data to help move ahead with the addendum license of the bivalent that's now commercially available. Other data that exist are actually mouse data. So there's a study here using bivalent vaccine uh, in humanized mouse whose immune systems are human, showing that you get really good titers against uh, Omicron BA5 um, using a bivalent vaccine that includes mRNA for both Wuhan and mRNA against uh, Omicron. So there's mouse data suggesting this is, uh, gives you very nice titers. And when you looked at what Pfizer presented to the FDA late June, July, before the decision was made, interestingly, it's mouse data. Their human data is in progress, as is Moderna's human trial for the BA45 bivalent booster. That, those data preliminarily should be released in November, but the FDA, again, based on mouse data, which I'll talk about in a minute, and the Omicron BA1 bivalent vaccine in a human trial, felt much like influenza, they didn't need to do further work to release this against the new strains of um, COVID that were circulating. In this study presented to the FDA by Pfizer, um, and this is the bivalent that was released, uh, you get really good titers against BA4-5, uh, more than 11-fold increase uh, with um, the bivalent, uh, I'm sorry, 11-fold with the monovalent and five-fold with a bivalent four and five. So it's really specific for Omicron and based on what we know about neutralizing antibodies should make people who get the booster much, much less susceptible to any severe disease from Omicron BA4-5. And BA4-5 are the majority of circulating strains, vast majority in the world right now and in the United States. So the FDA concludes that, um, and Pfizer asked for that since there's extensive clinical experience for variant-modified vaccines, 
And um, since we know that uh, uh, modifying a small number of nucleic acids in the mRNA is not changing the base of this vaccine, they requested the ability to update their vaccine B4 and 5. It was granted by the FDA, and as you see, it's now licensed and commercially available, both from Moderna. This would happen to be the Pfizer slides presented to the FDA. So in summary, and this is important because I've already been asked this question, okay? I, in fact, I, I went to a healthcare provider who's not getting the booster yet until they see the November data, and she said to me that I'm not going to get boosted because it was only given to eight mice. So I think that's not entirely true, but I appreciate that. And in November, we will have more human clinical trials. In the meantime, I believe anybody high risk needs to get this bivalent booster rather quickly. However, we're not going to have the definitive human data uh, in terms of prevention of severe illness um, from these Omicron variants until these trials are further along in human. And, and probably November uh, will be the time we're going to get some preliminary human data about efficacy of the bivalent booster. The FDA decision, much like for influenza annual updates, was based on the safety and immunogenicity of the monovalent vaccine, on the bivalent BA1 vaccine, on the amount of neutralizing antibodies that were produced that are protective, and on animal data. And the license says if you're 18 and above, you can get Moderna booster. Uh, and uh, if you're at least two months from your primary vaccination series, uh, and the Pfizer is for 12 and above. Now, there's haziness here. You know, what do you do if, um, for example, a child uh, never got any of the basic COVID vaccines but had COVID? Should you give them a booster? So I'm going to show you some data on that. And that's not the official recommendation. They want everyone to get the two dose and then get the booster. But we may need to get a little more flexible. If you look at influenza, we just give everybody the booster every year. We may need to get a little more flexible about this with COVID. I'm going to show you some data. I'm not speaking for the CDC or the Public Health Department. I'm just showing you the data. So this is the vaccine that's out, 12 and above for Pfizer, 18 and above for Moderna, at least two months from your last immunization. And I usually am suggesting 90 days if you just had acute COVID. Now, um, there are some data. This is older data about children and vaccination. Um, and effects of vaccination in previous infection, Omicron infections in children. So in this study, they found that the uh, Pfizer vaccine or previous infection, children, gave considerable immunity against Omicron for months and protected against hospitalization and death. So this is really important. So the vaccine, the, the vaccine doses for kids, two doses versus native infection, both were highly protective against Omicron. This came out of the North Carolina Department of Health. And here's some interesting data basically showing this is, I think this is the vaccine, yes, and this is native infection. Um, both gave months of very good protection against Omicron. So looking at these data, I would say, and this is not what the Public Health Department has said, this is not what the CDC is saying yet, but I believe if the human data in November are great, one might say, why bother with the primary immunization for children? Almost all of them have had COVID or they've been immunized. Just give them the booster. And let's do a clinical study looking at that in children and see whether the annual booster alone might be enough. And that would simplify enormously parents and everyone trying to grapple with this moving forward. I can't tell you if that's what's going to happen, but I did want to share you these data that are intriguing, showing that either native infection um, or 
the Pfizer vaccine in the, in the two doses gave excellent protection against Omicron in children. So booster would work. It falls off. You'll see that it does fall off and a booster is going to be needed annually. And so that might be a strategy that will be easier in the future. Should we immunize with the new booster regardless of immunization status? I just told you that this is a clinical study that's dying to be done. Maybe Dr. Salazar, we should do this study because it's easy to do. And, um, and we may very well go ahead and try it and try to simplify this for parents and show that the new Omicron booster alone might be enough, particularly if you've had COVID or you've been previously immunized. Um, what about Paxlovid? Great data. Again, how do we hone down our treatments, our vaccines, everything as we move to a more endemic disease? And I, I, I'm, we can argue about that word endemic. And what they found with Paxlovid was that if you're 65 or above, it works. The rates of hospitalization and death are significantly lower. But it doesn't work if you're young. And I'm going to show you that graph. It's, it doesn't do anything if you're young, probably because your rate of hospitalization and death is low anyway. So this is an old, the older age group, 65 and above. And um, you can see that no treatment had a high risk of, of severe disease. And treatment significantly lowers that risk. This is Paxlovid. And maybe you'll have some rebound, maybe you won't. But the da these data are just crystal clear. If you're high risk or old, you probably want to take Paxlovid. It's going to work in reducing your risk of, of uh, severe disease. However, if you're young, there wasn't much difference if you got Paxlovid or not. Um, and so I think, again, if you're a healthy 40-year-old and you get COVID, um, particularly if you've been immunized, there's just no indication to give Paxlovid. So we're starting to get the guidance we need, just like with cardiac disease or with diabetes, trying to understand what are effective therapies for who and what age group and what problems they have. So Paxlovid didn't do much in the under 65 age group. Once again, this will be my final slide. I keep saying that every three months, but this was a randomized controlled trial, ivermectin, et cetera, and they don't work. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to tell you that um, these drugs do not prevent severe COVID, final time. Um, and everyone who was pushing this should be embarrassed uh, by it. This, this should be personally sent to Tucker Carlson. Uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So when you get the data, which is what you need, you don't want to hurt people, these drugs don't work. COVID-19 infection and mRNA vaccine in kids with Kawasaki disease. I've been asked that question. I know Juan has. Okay, I had a kid with Kawasaki last year. Can I immunize them against COVID? Is there going to be some problem? And in this study, they looked at 153 patients. Um, uh, with, with Kawasaki, they got the vaccine and, and they followed all of this. And the fact of the matter was the vaccine was well tolerated. There were no severe complications. Uh, and a couple of patients had more prolonged mild symptoms and it worked. So the bottom line is it is okay to vaccinate kids against COVID who have had Kawasaki disease in the past. And in these data, um, it shows uh, you know, the kind of symptoms of these kids, only a very few number of them. Uh, had symptoms and they were fine. Um, and they, we now know they're protected against native disease, which is probably a good idea. So again, okay to immunize kids who've had Kawasaki in the past. Uh, now this is intriguing. Also, um, there's always been the worry that uh, patients with hematologic malignancies 
getting the vaccine, they're not going to make that good a response. It ter turns out in 584 immunocompromised patients with hematologic cancers, you know, leukemia, a third dose of the mRNA Moderna vaccine gave them great antibody titers. Uh, and in fact, the booster worked for them. So let me show you those data. So that's over here. These are hematologic oncology patients who got a third booster dose. And um, the vaccine gave them terrific neutralizing antibody titers. So that, again, guiding us to take care of our patients. Cancer patient with hematologic malignancy needs to be boosted. And you'll see, again, they, you know they will get excellent titers if we do that. And though that's the old booster. Again, I don't have data for the bivalent booster. Uh, now, what about MISI? And starting to get some long-term follow-up of MISI. And this is an article that came out last month uh, from um, uh, Children's in Boston showing health impairments in children and adolescents after hospitalization for severe COVID or MISI. And in fact, there's a lot of long-term stuff. And, and kids who are hospitalized or had MISI from COVID, um, uh, there's a lot of long-term fatigue and weakness, some coughing, headaches. A lot of kids had sort of long COVID symptoms for, for weeks and weeks. So something to keep in mind, if we are hospitalizing a kid who gets very sick with COVID or they have MISI, they're gonna need to be plugged into long-term follow-up because they're, they're more, much more likely than kids with mild COVID to get long-lasting, long COVID-type symptoms, and we don't really know why. Uh, now, we're seeing a fascinating um, thing in our hospital, and actually every children's hospital across the country is filled. It's packed, and it's not COVID. We're full of respiratory infections and early influenza and RSV and just stuff everywhere. And there are really two hypotheses going on about this. And, and one is everyone was locked away for two years, which it's in a silo, and so you didn't really get exposed and don't have immunity, which I think is true. But there's some other data making people a little anxious. This just was, um, this was published a year ago, like today, and it was sort of overlooked that in fact, SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, is immunosuppressive for a few months. So um, it's possible that in addition to being having poor immunity to all these viruses because we were locked away for a couple of years, if you're, if you're recovering from mild COVID, you may in fact have some downregulation of your immune system. And this is an active topic. This paper is a year old already, but it's being pursued again, trying to understand why is our hospital filled? Is it just lack of immunity for a couple of years? Or are we really looking at some other phenomenon downstream from large numbers of kids of having COVID over the last few months? I don't know the answer, but I think we're going to need to, to investigate. As you know, the pandemic is over. Uh, the president has, uh, has um, declared it so. And uh, those of you who criticize me on occasion for being biased here, I have the Democratic president up there saying pandemic's over. Now, this was controversial, as you can imagine, because um, as you've seen, we have a boatload of COVID still, and we have a lot of things we don't understand. So I guess if you're looking at the hospitals overwhelmed and, 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 and thousands of people are dying weekly, absolutely. Right now, the pandemic has moved to a much better place. So I think, you know, we could sort of equivocate on this and say we've moved to a severe endemic disease because it's not a mild disease if you're killing 500 people a day. So let's say we've moved to a more, a more endemic 
uh, uh, place for what's still a relatively severe disease. Now, uh, you'll be thrilled to know, if I can move this forward, which maybe I can't, there you go, that I've gotten rid of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I, I think uh, I, year three, are we moving to a more endemic infection? What does that mean? And let me run through some of this, and you'll make up your own mind. Um, the Omicron BA4 pandemic has reached a steady state in the U.S. and New England. Uh, you know, we're not at those huge spikes, and the hospitals are not filled, and our death rate is relatively low, or not zero. Now, we're not tracking rapid tests, so we know there are more, many more new cases than officially recorded. But even though that, the hospitalizations and deaths are very low, this is good. So this is telling you that both immunity as well as maybe lower virulence are resulting in a less severe disease. And remember, our deaths are concentrated in those 65 and above, 70 and above particularly. National deaths are still 300 to 500 a day. We're sort of defining that as endemic right now. And then we're moving it to a level of heart disease and cancer as a fairly significant cause of death in the United States. And again, to me, that's a public health intervention waiting to happen. And it's not happened yet. I don't see every nursing home having the, the bivalent vaccine being given out. So we need to kind of focus on where we're having the problem. This new bivalent booster includes mRNA encoding the Wuhan strain and the spike, pro the spike protein from Wuhan and the spike protein from BA.4.5 Omicron variant, which is, is pretty much the same. And the human data on efficacy will be limited until late fall, early winter. Well, we'll get it, but it won't be till November, December. We need to focus. I got the vaccine. My family's getting the vaccine. I highly recommend it, uh, um, particularly for high-risk individuals. We need to focus our efforts on those most likely to die from this infection with boosters. We need to be following hospitalizations per 100,000 throughout the country, and in my opinion, move away from tracking new cases and test positivity. I don't think it's meaningful when thousands and thousands of rapid tests are done at home and not reported. We need data on children to determine if an Omicron booster alone might be enough to be safe and effective annually in children. Maybe we don't need to do the full two doses, three doses, and all of that. I don't know. It's a study waiting to happen. We need to be vigilant in watching for new variants and to see whether resistance to Paxlovid and other effective therapies pops up. We need to have ongoing aggressive surveillance. I'm not so sure we are, but we need to because it's certainly possible, I'd hate to say it, but another variant might pop up and we might have another spike with a new variant, which again should trigger a new booster next year if that's what happens. I'm hoping it doesn't. BA.4.5, the Omicron variant, appears to be pretty efficient. There is a new BA variant that's come out, 2.75, I think it is, um, that is even more infectious and evades immunity, but right now it hasn't taken off, but it might. So we're just going to have to be vigilant for this. So is it over? Right now we're sort of in a serious um, disease endemic place where, again, it's one of the third or fourth highest cause of death in the United States right now after heart disease and cancer and, and other things. And so it's not gone, but we're not at that huge spike of thousands of people hospitalized and dying. We're in a much, much better place. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, I know we probably have lots of questions. I don't know if I can answer all the questions. Um, but again, uh, reassuring everyone, here we are, year three. I never thought I'd still be up here. Um, we're in a, the fact that the good, bad, the ugly is gone tells you where my head's at. 
I think we're in a much better place. I felt comfortable to wear a mask and go overseas because um, we're high risk and we did it fine. I think that we're in a better place. If you're 40 and immunized and healthy, you know, live your life. I think if you're 70, get immunized, and if you're walking into high-risk situations indoors, wear a mask. Again, I think we can simplify our public health interventions. We need more data on children urgently because the uptake for parents to, to get the two-dose vaccine is very, very low. So again, if we could show that most kids will respond great to one booster um, because most kids have already been exposed to COVID, that would really help us getting better uptake in the vaccine to immunize children. But right now, those data are months and months away. We're just not going to have it yet. I'll stop there, and we'll open it up to questions. Thank you, John. Um, as always, uh, incredibly informative, um, your commentary and perspective. We have uh, the first question is from Dr. Alex Hogan. And, uh, the, and, and Alex says, um, why, why did you say annual booster? Uh, vaccine booster efficacy drops off well before 12 months, more like six months. So I think what Alex is asking is, should we be given something every six months, or or this will will this eventually become seasonal, and it will be yeah. more of a 12 months? All great questions. So the question I'll repeat. You know, since we know that we have drop off in neutralizing antibodies so far after six months, why why are we saying annual? And then, is this going to move to seasonality? Um, I think the, the reality is, um, I'm pragmatist. I think it's going to be unlikely to have good uptake across 350 million people to have a shot every six months for COVID. I, I think if we could move to an annual place and show that you had enough mitigation of risk, particularly in your high-risk groups, uh, that it would be okay. Now, I think, to your point, though, the people who have most rapid fall off are elderly. So are we going to need to do something different in the high risk, someone with diabetes or heart disease or elderly? I don't know. It's a great question. I'm just saying I think realistically watching the performance of the world over the last couple of years, um, moving to an annual shot will be more acceptable. Now, are we moving to seasonality? It's a great question, and I don't know the answer. I will tell you that seasonality for respiratory viruses has been blown up, okay? Like I say, we were seeing RSV in July and influenza now, and I have no idea, and it hurts me to say this, as Juan knows, I have no idea what this is going to look like in January. Are we going to have a new COVID variant, or will COVID just be putzing along like it is now? We're going to have influenza or RSV, or are they going to go away because we already had them? I have no idea. I think uh, we'll have to watch and see. Right now, we're packed. And every, you know, adenovirus and respiratory, and we've seen a number of invasive uh, sinusitis infections and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think the hospitals across the country, pediatric hospitals, are filled. So nothing's seasonal right now. And we're going to need to see as we move back indoors and outdoors and masks go away, will we move to more seasonality for the things we already used to have seasonal, like flu and RSV, and then what's going to happen with COVID? It, it is the it is the you know sixty four million dollar question. What's going to happen in terms of seasonality for all of these infections? Right now, it's just what we all used to know is gone, and all of us are struggling with that. I mean, I'm used to you know RSV. We stopped giving the antibody X within the NICU, and you know they have, I have all these schedules from the Red Book, and it's all gone. It doesn't work right now. So we're going to need to watch carefully and, and see what happens to all these respiratory viruses come winter. 
it's possible it could be a very intense winter for us. I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, <clears throat> are there any new variants on the horizon? That's from Jennifer talking. Yeah, there's a BA. I might have the number. I believe it's 2.75 that is um, highly contagious and evades antibodies even more effectively than BA.4.5. I do not know whether it's covered in the BA.4.5 bivalent, and it's not dominant yet. It's very, I think it's like 3 or 4% of the variants so far, but we're not measuring that many. But that's what we see in the United States. So we have to watch carefully. So the answer is yes. There's another Omicron variant that has another mutation that's out there. There are probably lots of them we just don't know about. BA.4.5 seems to really be in a happy place if you look at a virus, right? It's infecting a lot of people. Most people are not dying, so you get to propagate better. It's le it seems to be less virulent, you know, so it's sort of found a nice steady state niche. I hope that it stays that way because that way we could react uh, better. But, you know, like influenza, I think you have to assume there are going to be things that pop up. And we know we have the technology now very quickly with the mRNA vaccines to respond almost instantly to new variants. So I think we're in a better place if new variants do come up. Uh, just this, just a comment from Jennifer also. I really like all the data that are presented. Um, it would be great if all of the full text articles could be put into a file or link so that we can look at them more closely. So we'll, we'll work on that yeah, with our That's team. a great suggestion, and, and uh, I, hopefully our team will be able to do that. So um, a good suggestion. Uh, from Dr. Spiegelman, uh, how reliable are rapid tests for initial symptoms of the Omicron, of the most common Omicron variant? I've seen several cases where it needed to be repeated for positive results one to two, two days later without PCR. This is just a rapid antigen. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't have new data on the rapids, but remember back in the, when we were first investigating all these tests, the rapids were not as good as PCR. They were about 70, 75 percent um, uh, in terms of sensitivity. Um, they're very specific if they're positive, and PCR was 95 percent. In other words, if you had a true positive, PCR was more likely to pick it up. So we always knew that the um, rapids were not quite as good as PCR. However, I will say I've certainly seen um, where people early on um, uh, with Omicron have a negative rapid, and if they repeat it a few days later, it's positive when there's more virus and antigen. So I think that's been pretty typical. Um, People are seeing that, and I don't, you know, again, we, there are a lot of rapid tests out there, and I always suggest if someone um, doesn't feel right and they have an initial rapid test that's negative, that they repeat it on day five. Yeah. Uh, because, again, if it's COVID, it's likely much more, day five is the time where you have sort of the peak, uh, more likely to be positive. From, uh, again, from Dr. Hogan, 4% of adults who are triple vaccinated have long COVID, I guess, if they get yeah. infected. Uh, millions are out of work in U.S. due to past symptoms. Are there any data in PEDS, and what should prevention strategies be? Yeah, it's a great question. I didn't address long COVID in this talk. There's a lot going on with that. And, you know, the actual numbers are hard to know. Some saying 5%, some saying 10% of everyone who gets COVID has some sort of long COVID symptoms. And it's a, it's a broad spectrum. Um, I, I certainly have had some patients and acquaintances who feel tired for a month and eventually feel better. I have uh, someone we know um, personally in town who had mild COVID in December and can't walk up a stairway and is being extensively worked up and, and absolutely cannot find a specific reason the individual is always short of breath. And there's some data suggesting that COVID may be a mitochondrial poison and oxygen metabolism in mitochondria can be dinged by COVID. So the whole long COVID 
issue is really important and it gets to the issue of prevention in that you'd like not to have millions of people with long COVID and so much like I said earlier that's a public health intervention to get those data and understand does vaccine mitigate that the early data suggested that you're much less likely to have long COVID if you're immunized and get COVID but I can't I haven't seen really good data on that to prove that point so it's a really important now in terms of children I showed you with Missy and severe COVID there are a lot of kids who have symptoms for weeks and weeks and weeks I haven't seen a prospective follow-up of children with documented COVID, what percent are getting long COVID and what that means and how they're being followed. I, I've just not seen that study yet. I'm not saying it's not out there. I didn't find it in my review this week. So great questions, data that needs to be obtained. And it is a fear among many of the public health and infectious disease people that again, although the pandemic's over, as you saw was announced by the president, that this is still a very virulent virus that has unexpected outcomes in certain people that are not good, negative outcomes, long COVID, severe disease. So there's a lot we don't understand about this virus still. And in my opinion, you'd like not to have millions and millions of people get it over and over and over again. I think I'd prefer to have boosters that would at least mitigate that. Uh, from John Pittigoff, uh, in a congregate care setting after five days, what should be the recommendation? Um, I guess that must Not be after sure exposure, testing, mask, et cetera. Uh, you know, you have to go with what the local public health department is asking in terms of that congregate care. If you're talking about a nursing home, there are specific yeah. recommendations. I, I wouldn't want to say something that's incorrect, but common sense would dictate that um, you're going to need more than one test. So I, again, I, I, I'd prefer if we pulled back to DPH and looked at what Connecticut DPH specifically recommends, because there are specific recommendations for congregate care in Connecticut. Uh, from Andrea, uh, it seems to me that early, the elderly statistics should be subdivided more specifically. And you know, this is the whole issue of who's, who's elderly or not. There's a huge difference between most 65 and 80 year olds. I, I, don't, I, I don't consider 65 year old elderly, especially uh -huh. now that I'm turning 60. Yeah, I don't know. You know, when I went on Medicare, it's sort of like you throw up your hands, you know, is that elderly, you know, but I think it's a great question. And it gets to my earlier point of let's focus on the individuals at high risk and understand that better. I couldn't agree more. We need to be going into the hospitals and following person 65, 75, 80, who is hospitalized with COVID and understanding, you know, what co diseases did they have, if any? You know, what are the other issues and getting a finer razor to your point about what makes risk, what doesn't make risk, who dies, who doesn't die. And that allows public health interventions, right? We simply don't have those specific data yet and we need them. So I, it's a great point and one in which I would be, there should be, a, maybe there is, there should be a very aggressive CDC study right now looking at all these elderly in parentheses who are hospitalized and understanding What's what, right? You're right, a 65-year-old is probably not the same as an 80-year-old. I had an 82-year-old friend who got COVID, and you know he went to the hospital, he was sick, and he got two days of remdesivir and went home. That's not always the typical story. It's like three comorbidities. And so I, I don't think we understand this. So it's a great point. We need to learn more, and frankly, as soon as possible. Because I think if we had more specific public health interventions, not everyone wear a mask or everyone on an airplane wear a mask, but focus on, hey, if you're this, this, and this, you're 70 and you have diabetes and heart disease, go see your doctor, you know, get your vaccine. You know, well, what the data shows, I think if we could get more specific, just like we do for cancer, 
or like we do for heart disease, you know, take your statins if this, this, and this. I think it would be better accepted by the public and quite frankly have bigger bang for the buck in prevention of disease. I don't have those data, but we definitely need them. It's a great point. I have another question if from um, Dr. Jocelyn. Uh, I work in a residential setting and vaccinate our youth. I'm starting to administer the bivalent booster. Here's the issue. If I have a youth who, admitted, who is admitted but unwilling to be vaccinated but had no prior vaccine, yeah. and what do you do with those? I don't have the answer. And I, as I mentioned, we desperately need those data. I think if it's your only opportunity to get vaccine into them and you know they're going to go out into the wind, maybe you should vaccinate. But that's not the FDA right. recommendation. The FDA says, you know, use it after you're, you know, it's, oh, I, I showed you, it's other 12 and above, 18 and above, you know, if you've had two, you get this, you get that. So I, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't have the data to tell you to do one thing or the other. I know Dr. Salazar is already designing the study that we're <laughs> going to do to look at single booster in kids who've had COVID versus, you know, I, I think it could be done safely and, and get that study done. But I don't know what to do. I would tell you the FDA would say start your initial series. Yeah, that and then okay. the, the way it's approved, the FDA, you, you have to, again, for this symposium, right. we have to recommend, you know, what the FDA says are you properly. We have to recommend what the FDA So they would say do your initial series of the regular vaccine and then two months, says two months, then give the booster. Yeah, exactly. That's what they say. Um, how do we determine if there's protection from severe disease and hospitalization if very few are being hospitalized for having severe disease? Uh, it's a great point. I mean, it's the fact that we're not seeing a lot of people hospitalized with severe disease and 70% of the population is immunized or had COVID is giving you the answer, in my opinion. Immunity prevents severe infection and death. Now, you know, can we, when you move down to a more endemic disease and you don't have thousands of people sick, so you can instantly do the study, right? You're right. I mean, if it's lower incidence, you're going to have much longer, larger studies to demonstrate efficacy. I'm interested to see, it's a great point, I'm interested to see what exactly Pfizer and Moderna are going to share with us in November in the human study, uh, human trials of the vaccine. I think they've been doing it for about five or six months now. I mean, they're going to have some efficacy data because there's just so much COVID. But to your point, it might be more about infection versus bad outcomes. I, mean, I just don't know. Certainly in elderly, there's enough a serious illness that you could measure that so in people who are high risk so I think they'll get some data yeah but but I think what will become more apparent is, is the, the long haul or the associated complications I mean we all know someone who was very healthy who got the virus uh, and and was knocked out of work for two three months and they, that I consider that severe and we think that vaccination yeah. modulates that downward that less people who are vaccinated get COVID but again we need those hard data. You know, millions, thousands of people need to be followed long-term to determine that. From Larry Serzer, one of our pediatricians, may the population of countries, uh, the population of countries that have tried to control the spread of COVID through isolation strategies become a risk, become a risk for the rest of the world in terms uh -huh. of the development of new mutations, specifically how will China fare in the yeah. future, I guess? I, I, you know, I, I actually, as a public health official, they've, they've, dug themselves into a very deep rabbit hole in China right now. I think there are very few people who are immune. The vaccination rollout and the vaccine they're using is not the most effective. And they're in a problem because now if you let COVID just sweep through 1.3 billion people who are non-immune, it's going to be horrendous. 
And um, I don't know what to do. And, and I think that they've created a very difficult situation for themselves. They're going to need to have constant lockdowns. Whereas the West of the world, it's messy, right? Democracies are messy. We know that. Look, look at us, right? We muddled our way through to an endemic disease, okay? A lot of people were immunized. We fought with each other. We had TV shows and lawsuits. But if you look at where we are now, I mean, things are, we're kind of moving ahead, right? People are working. Most people aren't getting sick. We're kind of getting an idea of what to do. All the things I showed you, we're in a better place. And I really worry about China, both economically, because they're so important to the economics of the world, but health-wise, what are you going to do now? I mean, what they should be doing is getting the most effective vaccine they can find, which is probably the Western vaccines, not the one they're using. Sinovac doesn't seem to work as well. And just immunizing all over the place and then gradually lifting up and let people get mild disease. They're going to need to do that. I don't think that's their policy. and so. It's a very serious worldwide question, and, and, and I think it has um, economic overtones for the entire world as well. Uh, so I don't have an answer. I don't, I'm not the public health guidance to the government of China. I wish I could to say, hey, dudes, what are you thinking here? Let's move out, move and get a plan. But I don't know. They, they just keep locking down, and then no one's getting immune. So I don't, where do you go with that? And the COVID's going to be in the rest of the world still. It's endemic, right? So anybody traveling to China could reintroduce it over and over and over and over again. So you, you got to have a strategy to have immunity across the population, and that's not happening there. So I, I, it's a, a fundamental question. I, I, I do think public health people now are becoming puzzled. At, it's just so obvious now. Why are we just locking down over and over and over again? Let's at least get vaccines in there. And I think there was an offer uh, by Pfizer and Moderna to license it to China, let them produce it, and they, they turned it down because, they, you know, they don't want to admit that they might need a Western vaccine. So it's a very, very difficult world problem. It's, it's a great point. I, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying they've, they've painted themselves in a very small corner now of just lockdown is the only response. That's not where we need to be uh, as a world, in my opinion. John, any info on the timing of the booster when receiving both influenza and, and the bivariant? It, you know, people seem to do fine getting both. The FDA says it's fine. There's no data to show it's a problem. Uh, and, and so it's personal choice. You know, I, I like to wait a little bit for influenza in October because I, I'd like to still be immune in February when, you know, we, we think it might still be around. So I, I tend to get it like October 1st, which is next week, just personally. I know it's already out, and so I highly recommend it we get flu. You've seen what's happening. We flu is already here. The vaccine, by the way, seems to be very good for the circulating flu right now. It seems to be specific. Sometimes we miss the boat. I don't think it missed the boat this year. Highly recommend you get the flu shot. If you get it with the COVID booster, it's fine. Or you want to get it separately, it's fine. Uh, if over 70, if somebody's over 70 and received two boosters with a monovalent, should they get the bivalent as the booster? Absolutely. And you would get the bivalent at least two months after your last booster. I've had two boosters. I got, just got the bivalent last week. I highly recommend it if you're elderly or above. Remember, the booster you got previously is monovalent. The titers against Omicron were never great, and now they've dropped. So you've seen the titers I showed you, at least as far as we can tell so far, from the BA45 bivalent are, are really good against, you know, against Omicron. So absolutely, I would get the Omicron booster. Yeah, and, and I think the uh, the... The, the, the EUA for boosters was removed for the 
monovalent, and it's only available as a bivalent. Exactly. You can't exactly you, you can't get, get the monovalent it. booster anymore. It's all bivalent. But it's all bivalent. It, I, again, I wouldn't don't think because you got two boosters, it's okay. Get your Omicron booster. Correct. Um, can uh, I think what their question is? Can the vaccine can the vaccine affect the common cold, either in presentation or? Uh, okay. Well, so this is a fascinating question, and I'm going to digress. Why are we asking that? Well. At least at, at some children's hospitals, including Connecticut Children's, we've had some kids with rhinovirus, rhinovirus, who are really sick. We don't see this, okay? I haven't seen it, except in immunocompromised. I've seen it in severely immunocompromised. I've never seen it in a healthy kid. And so I know Dr. Salazar has seen a case, right? Um, so I don't know what's happening with rhinovirus. There are two hypotheses. A rhinovirus is changing, or the host is different, okay? And the host could be different in two ways. No immunity to rhinoviruses because we've been locked in a, in, in a safe for two years, which is probably true, right? Kids didn't interact for a couple of years. Or COVID is down-modulating our immunity. So many kids have COVID, and it's actually immunosuppressive. I simply don't know the answer. And it's a great question. It, it gets to the point of why are we seeing all these viruses? You know, oh, everyone's saying, oh, nobody was immune. Is there more going on? I don't know. It's, a, it's actively being investigated. It's, it's a really important question. Why would we see rhinovirus put kids in the hospital? So, and we're looking at the virus itself. Is, is the virus changed? I don't know the answer to that. So all unknowns, really good questions. Great. Uh, thank you, John. I think that comes to the, the end of our questions. We had over 87 people join us today, so people are still wanting to hear about COVID even Okay. in almost 23. Uh, so again, thank you for a great presentation. Uh, I'm not sure when we see you again for... for uh, well, you know what I would like, and, and uh, Nicole, maybe everyone could survey in whether it's necessary to have more Ask the Experts on COVID in the coming months uh, or not. Let's, get, let's let the audience give some guidance on that. But uh, normally I would say let's do it again in November. Um, but let's see what our audience would like. Yeah, great. We are planning uh, a session on, uh, as a follow-up to our Tuesday Grand Rounds on, uh, on suicide prevention by Attorney Langis, uh, Langis uh, and uh, Dr. Dworkin has, has agreed to do one on screening for suicide, which is a little different, but something that's going to be very important. So, so again, thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. We will uh, see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds, and then as uh, soon as John comes back, uh, be well, be safe, enjoy your first fall day. Bye-bye.